tell me what to Google. I'm Michael Kent, and this is a podcast where listeners tell me something they recently learned from the internet that they think I should know about. It's a podcast without a category because you tell me what we're going to talk about. If you were lucky enough to listen to last week's episode, you were luckier than old Roy Sullivan. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, you didn't get that reference then. Quick programming note before we get started this week. If you've listened to this podcast and you enjoy it, I have a huge favor to ask of you. I'm an entertainer. That's what I do for a living. So by my very nature, I'm insecure. And it would mean a lot to me if you would provide me with some external validation by reviewing this podcast on iTunes. Or if you want to make me feel even more loved, you can access bonus content by becoming a member of my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. That's enough of that. Let's get on to this week's show. Today's topic comes from Melissa. Hey, Michael, this is Melissa. I currently live in the Toledo area, but I used to live in Boston. And there is this wild, almost unbelievable story about a huge molasses flood that happened like back in the 1919-ish time. Um, I think you should Google it and check it out. Thanks. Nope, no idea. Not even sure I knew that molasses could flow fast enough to flood. Let's take a look. Interesting. This looks awful. Uh, I immediately see some of the photos of this disaster, and it is certainly a disaster judging by the photos. 21 people killed, 150 injured by flowing molasses in 1919. Okay, let's jump back in time. It was January of 1919. Just two months earlier, World War I was officially over, though the Treaty of Versailles had yet to be signed. America was suffering from the pandemic of 1918, often referred to as the Spanish Flu, which killed 675,000 Americans. The Boston Red Sox had won the 15th World Series the previous year, and the United States was getting ready to enter Prohibition. In Boston, the temperature on January 15th was a sunny 40 degrees Fahrenheit at the Purity Distilling Company. Sounds cold, but it was a nice warm relief from the freezing temperatures the weeks before. Along Keeney Square, the Purity Distilling Company had a giant 2.3 million gallon tank of molasses. At 12.30 p.m., just past noon on January 15th, people in the North End neighborhood of Boston heard a tremendous crash. To many, it sounded like thunder. To people close to the tank, they immediately saw what happened. The tank seemed to explode into pieces behind the power of a giant tsunami-like wave of dark, thick molasses. A nearby truck was hurled into the harbor. The wave of molasses reached 25 feet tall at its peak, tall enough to slam the steel of the tank against the elevated railroad structures nearby. The heavy molasses, 40% more dense than water, traveled at 35 miles per hour away from the tank. Nearby buildings were lifted off of their foundations and crushed. Horses were stuck. People were drowned. The next morning, the Boston Post ran in giant letters the headline, Huge Molasses Tank Explodes in North End. 11 dead, 50 hurt. Though, we now know those would not be the final numbers. The article goes on to describe, quote, Horses blown about like chips, houses torn asunder, and the heavy section of the elevated railroad structure smashed like an eggshell. End quote. A police patrolman, Frank McManus, is quoted in that article. McManus was 100 feet from the tank, and he said he felt some wet, sticky substance strike him on the shoulders. He thought it was mud, 
but then he saw the entire tank fall. The Boston Post continued, ensnaring in its sticky flood more than 100 men, women, and children, crushing buildings, teams, automobiles, and streetcars, everything in its path. The black, reeking mass slapped against the side of the buildings footing Copse Hill and then swished back toward the harbor. By the time the scene was fully cleared and examined, 21 people would be dead, and as many as 150 would be injured. Horses would be killed, buildings, cars, and trucks destroyed, absolute terror. And for years, authorities argued about why. We're gonna take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. So many parents are being tasked right now with not only your career and regular parenting duties, but now with trying to help your kids learn. And it's so important that your kids continue hands-on learning from home. Check out Thimble.io. This is an awesome monthly subscription service for middle and high school students that teaches real-world stuff like robotics, coding, and engineering through quarterly STEM kits and online classes. So you and your kids can stay at home, but still have a virtual engineering lab at home, teaching your kids everything from robotics to weather stations to drones from top professionals who've worked with companies like SpaceX, Microsoft, and Apple. Subscribe now and cancel at any time. Go to thimble.io and use my code TELLME, all one word, to get 15% off any subscription. That's thimble.io and use the promo code TELLME. Do you like jokes? How about stories? What about magic tricks? If you said yes to any of those, you'll love my weekly live stream show, Joke Story Trick Live. Every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, we gather to tell listener jokes, do magic, even learn magic, and bring on a special guest to tell a story. We've had everyone from a sitting U.S. congressman to television stars to WWE wrestlers. It's always a great time, and it's a free show. Just go to jokestorytrick.com to watch past episodes or tune in every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. That's jokestorytrick.com. I hope to see you there. I don't know about you, but this time of year, as it starts to get colder, we love burning candles around the house. Okay, who am I kidding? It's all year round. And our favorite candles are made by Daniel Joseph. They're 100% all-natural soy with braided cotton wicks and fragranced oils. And not only are they handmade in Evanston, Illinois, they're made from all American materials. Because they're made with soy instead of crude oil paraffin wax, they burn clean with no soot and they burn longer. We love the cashmere vanilla, but brown sugar and fig is great too, and you'll just have to go see it for yourself. Go to DanielJosephCandles.com. It's DanielJosephCandles.com. In the period leading up to what became known as the Great Molasses Flood of Boston, molasses had become hugely popular as a sweetener. It was an alternative to white sugar, and it was the main ingredient in brown sugar. It also created byproducts that could be sold, like rum and alcohol. When fermented, molasses could create a type of alcohol that at that point was important for making munitions like the ones that had been used in Europe in World War I. At the Purity Distilling Company in the North End neighborhood, which was a subsidiary of United States Industrial Alcohol Company, they had used a giant steel tank to store molasses as it was offloaded from ships in Boston Harbor. The tank itself was designed to hold up to 2.5 million gallons of fluid. On January 13th and 14th, 
1919, a ship from Puerto Rico came and filled the tank to 2.3 million gallons, almost completely full. There are a couple theories that have been put forth about what happened. In 2014, an analysis by structural engineer Ronald Mayville found that the structure wasn't properly built to hold molasses. It may have been okay with water, but the thickness of the tank walls, which was on average about half an inch thick, it just wasn't thick enough to hold molasses. As I said earlier, molasses is 40% more dense than water and weighs about 12 pounds a gallon. Another issue experts have pointed out was a flawed rivet design. And while the tank had been filled 29 times to that point, the way it was filled the day before this disaster was the, only the fourth time in its history it had been filled to capacity, 2.3 million gallons. There were also warning signs. Neighborhood kids, this is crazy, neighborhood kids were known to have visited the tank prior to the disaster because they would bring cups to fill with molasses that would leak out between the cracks in the steel. There were cracks in the steel. The tank was known to make groaning noises. One employee actually brought a broken piece of steel from the tank into his boss's office to say, here, look at this. And he was dismissed because the guy just said, well, the tank is standing. But what made the steel so brittle may have been that there wasn't enough manganese mixed into the steel when it was made. This would make the walls of the tank very unstable but very brittle with temperature changes. And a temperature change is what had taken place before the tank ruptured. As I stated earlier, the weather in Boston had been really cold, and that week the temperature rose to 40 degrees, which was warmer. The ship filled the tank to 2.3 million gallons and they would heat the molasses during the pumping process to make it flow more smoothly. One of the deadliest factors of the flowing molasses after the catastrophic collapse of the tank was that the warm molasses flowed quickly and then cooled when it hit the streets in the air, making it much more thick and sticky. The Boston Police, the Red Cross, the Army, the Navy, and 116 cadets from the USS Nantucket helped by wading through knee-deep molasses to locate victims. They set up a makeshift hospital in a nearby building that hadn't been destroyed. And for the next four days straight, working day and night, they located the flood's victims one by one. 21 people in all, including two 10-year-old children. Ships sprayed the harbor's salt water onto the streets to clean off the molasses, and it wasn't until then that workers could cut apart giant plates of steel to find victims underneath. Some of them had been swept into the harbor by the flood and weren't found until the spring. After a class action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, the company had to shell out $628,000 in damages. That would be just over $9 million in today's money. And families of those who were killed received $7,000 settlements. The court case went on for years and to this day is talked about as one of the pioneer cases in arguing for government regulation of corporate practices. One of the most interesting parts of this story is one of the strange consequences of the Great Molasses Flood of Boston. For decades after the disaster, the north end of Boston had a recognizable reminder of the lives lost on that tragic day. For 20 years, it was said, the north end neighborhood had a sweet smell in the air the smell of molasses. It's time for the part of the podcast where we call a friend to see if they already know what we just learned. Today, we're going to call my friend Ama Marfo. Ama is a prolific writer, a professional speaker. She speaks on group dynamics, leadership, and creativity. And I've known Ama since she lived in Florida, but she lives in Boston now. 
so I was curious if she had heard of this. Hello? Amma! Hi. What's going on? Not too much, Michael. How are you? I'm good. You're in Boston. I am. I am in Boston, alive and indoors, as we all should be at this point in time. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I just did a whole thing about a catastrophe, a disaster that happened in Boston. And okay. we're going to quiz you on some of this stuff for the podcast, if that's good with you. Are you ready for a quick quiz? Let's do it. Let's jump in. There was a notable flood in the early 1900s in Boston. It killed 21 people and injured 150. What was notable about that flood? What was notable about that flood? So there are lasting legacies of it. Some people will swear to you that it is a legacy based on smell, but it was this molasses. This is fantastic. Amma, you knew the answer. You are a true Bostonian. So this is a pretty widely known thing in Boston? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a book about it called Dark Tide. Um, it's come up on Drunk History a couple times. People love talking about it. But yeah, that is one of the things. Isn't it interesting that it killed 21 people, yet people love talking about it as if it's this like, oh, whimsical, fun fact about Boston? It's because the 21 people is very sad. But the idea of an entire section of a town smelling sweet for 20 years is yeah. is sort of a sweet way to think about it. So it might sugarcoat, no pun intended, it might <laughs> sugarcoat the whole thing. Uh, so. Kinda it's an odd thing. Like, I don't know if it's the puritanical element of Boston, but man, people love talking about when things go poorly. Like, Here's a multiple choice question for you. Okay. The crest of the molasses wave mm -hmm. was A, 4 feet, B, 25 feet, or C, 14 feet. I mean, I can't imagine a crest of molasses 25 feet high. That doesn't mean it can't be an answer. That just means I can't conceive of it. Um, how fast would a wave that high be moving? Not the point. Um, the answer is 35 miles per hour. But Amazing. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't necessarily help you with this answer. Uh, 14 feet? The answer is actually B, 25 feet. Huh. And one of the well-documented things is that it was high enough to hit the L and slap a train off the L. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about the, the train bit of it, but like it's very Bostonian to complain about public transit. So if that was an urban myth, like someone just said it and then it yeah. stuck, which makes total sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can just, I don't know if they had the Boston accent in 1919, but I can just see them complaining about that's why the train is late. All right, so the final question. There was a long court case after the disaster. What is one of the lasting outcomes of that court case? I want it to be regulatory, right? So like the very least someone saying, hey, let's get somebody in trouble for not stopping this from happening. Like in, in at least two ways, it feels like a slow move towards something awful happening, um, both in the probably lack of regulation or lack of diligence leading up to it and then the accident itself probably just being slow moving by its nature um so i want to see something regular i i know it i i know it um so uh, I want to say it was like something regulatory. You're 100 percent correct. Uh, it's yes. not even not even specific to storage, but just corporate regulation uh, and, and you know best practices in safety. So government regulation of of corporate practices. It's still cited today as one of the first cases where this became really important. 
And a lot of that had to do with, you know, this giant payout to all of the families and the North End neighborhood mm-hmm. because there were warning signs that they ignored and there were practices that they didn't follow. So, see, you got to address those warning lights. Don't let them keep blinking. Yeah, unless it's a car and then you just learn how to turn off the warning light. Our neighborhood kids were known to show up at the tank with cups to fill with molasses that was flowing through the cracks in the steel. So you know that it's happening at that point. Like, if kids are able to siphon it off, like, you can't be like, well, we didn't know anything was wrong. Yeah, your plausible deniability is out the window at that point. Let's go back to when you learned about it briefly, um, because I feel like this is the, the interesting part of this conversation is that it is sort of, uh, how how did you phrase it? It's it's sort of a celebrated disaster, or people love to talk about it. We love we love a disaster, and we love talking about it. I don't know why, but yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you talking about it with me, and uh, I am impressed that you knew about this. As a Midwesterner, I had never heard about it, but I googled it, and now I know about the molasses flood of Boston in 1919. Amma, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Amma Marfo, all one word. And phone of all types is also on my website, AmmaMarfo.com. So I travel around the country under normal circumstances. Now I get to do it from my computer, uh, talking to college students and to companies, and then also doing a little bit of comedy when I have time. And if you, can, if you have the time to look at it, I had Amma on my show, Joke Story Trick. She told a fantastic story. You should check that out. Amma, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope to see you soon. I would love that. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for this week. Please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes with a little bit of verbiage. Writing a few words helps a ton to allow other people to listen and to allow other people to tell me what to Google. We'll see you next week. Tell Me What to Google is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Reed Mattis, and additional music this week came from Asher Folero and Ease Jammy Jams. You can listen to past episodes by searching for Tell Me What to Google wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Kent.